The Outside Podcast is brought to you by BioLite Energy, a company transforming the way we cook, charge, and light our lives off the grid. And when you think of going off the grid, you usually think of going out into the backcountry. But BioLite is also useful when the grid goes off you. Lighting the paper. This last weekend, the Pacific Northwest got hit by this huge wind and rainstorm, and my house was one of the last ones to get its power restored. But since BioLite's camp stove has a conductive attachment, while everyone else was complaining, I was out on the porch, boiling some water, with power flowing into my phone. Start feeding some sticks in there. Now, I'm not actually suggesting that you spend your power outage time on the phone. You should be playing board games or chasing each other with hot candle wax. Little bitty sticks to start with. But this is a survival show, and let's be honest, sometimes you do really need your phone. And with BioLite, it'll have power. And you'll have some tea. Go to BioLiteEnergy.com slash outside for $15 off your first order. That's B-I-O-L-I-T-E. And enter outside at checkout. The Outside Podcast is also brought to you by Health IQ, a company that rewards your knowledge of healthy living with lower rates on life insurance. In the past few episodes, I've been asking my co-producer, Robbie Carver, real Health IQ questions while he raced his bike. How are you feeling? <laughs> but now it's your turn. Ready? Okay. Which of the following foods is a large part of the Mediterranean diet, which has been shown to reduce inflammation? Nuts, red meat, refined grains, or whole milk? If you chose whole milk, well, nuts. But if you even get that joke, you should probably take the rest of the quiz and see if Health IQ can improve your insurance rates. To learn more and see if you qualify, visit healthiq.com outside. That's healthiq.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. (laughs) By the time it crashed into a Bolivian mountain, Eastern Airlines Flight 980 would have been just about ready to land. The flight attendants would have done their final sweeps through the cabin, and 29 people on board would have heard the engine slow down and change pitch just slightly as the plane began its descent. It was 8.30 at night on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1985. Just a regular, mostly empty commercial flight. The plane was on its way from Asuncion, Paraguay to Miami but it made a few stops on the way, including La Paz, Bolivia. No one really knows what was happening in the cockpit, but you can imagine it's a pretty focused environment. The pilot, Larry Campbell, was landing in La Paz for just the second time. The first had been on the trip south. The co-pilot, Ken Rhodes, was a no-nonsense military man. The flight engineer, Mark Bird, had only started flying with the Eastern a few months before, and this would not have been the moment for the new guy to chime in. For one thing, the approach to La Paz was through a mountainous river valley, and there was a storm outside, so this was difficult flying. Also, there was no radar in Bolivia back then, so air traffic control couldn't actually see the plane. The cockpit crew had to figure out their own position and report it back over the radio. If they got it wrong, there was no one to tell them they were off course. 
On that night, January 1st, the air traffic controllers wished Flight 980 a happy new year, and the plane came back to say thanks. Okay, thank you. Happy new year to you too. At 55 miles from the airport, they were cruising at 20,000 feet and got clearance to descend to 18,000. Everything was going fine until they hit the side of a mountain. EA980, what is your current position? Over. 980, do you copy? Over. 980, come back. 980, come back. Over. It took a full day of planes flying a search pattern before the Bolivian Air Force spotted the wreckage, smeared across the snow just below the summit of 21,000-foot Mount Illimani. It was the highest altitude plane crash ever. There were no survivors. And what happened in those final moments, and then during the subsequent investigation, is considered one of the greatest aviation mysteries of the 20th century. We're devoting our next two episodes to figuring out what went wrong. And I gotta say up front, This thing goes in a direction I really didn't think it would. Every investigation into a plane crash starts with recovering the flight recorders, two metallic cubes mounted at the back of the plane. Together, they're known as the black box, though there's two of them, and they're painted bright orange. The problem was, to get to the boxes, someone had to get to the wreckage, and it had begun to snow. Hard. The Bolivian military mobilized a team to climb the mountain, but it had to turn back because of avalanche danger. A Bolivian climber named Bernardo Garachi did make it up there two days later, but his ascent is where things start to get weird. Garachi didn't take any pictures at the crash site. He didn't file a report when he got back. No one really even knew who sent him. American investigators interviewed him later, but all he would tell them is that he recovered, quote, nothing of value. We'll come back to him later. When teams from the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, and the Airline Pilots Association, also known as ALPA, got to the scene, they opted to fly to the crash site rather than climb. And they requested a high-altitude helicopter from Peru. Problem was, Bolivia wouldn't let it into the country. So the helicopter sat on the Bolivia-Peru border for about four days, And the NTSB suspected the reason was that the Bolivians didn't want the world to know that the Peruvians had a better helicopter than they did. That's Bud Leppard, chairman at the time of ALPA's Accident Analysis Board. He went to Bolivia as soon as he heard about the crash. Keep in mind, it's still snowing up on the mountain, so the longer they wait, the harder it gets to find the flight recorders. But after a few days, they did get permission to bring the helicopter and Leopard concocted what we will call a daring plan. He and another searcher were going to jump off a helicopter at the summit, then ski down to the crash site. Was there a recognition at the time in La Paz that, like, you all are crazy? (laughs) I would imagine that was probably true. Um, But uh, Thankfully, better judgment prevailed when they realized that the helicopter couldn't hover or land at that altitude. So they were just going to have to find one that could. It turns out that Skokorsky uh, was developing a Blackhawk helicopter in, in the United States 
that they had planned to sell to the Chinese to use in high-altitude mountaineering rescue. And uh, so the NTSB asked that that helicopter be brought down to La Paz. Sikorsky Aircraft is an aviation company based in Connecticut. They had a prototype helicopter that was ready to be tested. So they shipped it to Bolivia on an Air Force plane with two mechanics who were supposed to put it back together when it got there. Problem was, when they arrived in La Paz at 13,000 feet, they were just leveled by the altitude. And they were so sick for two or three days that they couldn't do anything but lie in bed. And because it plays a role in almost everything that comes next, here we should take a second to explain why humans feel so crappy at altitude, which means pausing the search. I'm talking to a doctor. Hi, my name is Brian Jones. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at uh, OHSU. Jones studies and treats people who can't breathe, mostly because of emphysema, asthma, or another lung disease. But he started out studying altitude and has firsthand experience with what happens to people in the mountains. Going from sea level to, uh, you know, an intermediate level of altitude, 12,000, 14,000 feet, pretty much everyone will have some symptoms if you ascend rapidly over there. Not everyone, but most people will. At sea level, a lung full of air is 21% oxygen. At 13,000 feet in La Paz, the air is still 21% oxygen. But the molecules themselves are farther apart, which makes breathing way less efficient. If you could spread your lungs out and iron them flat, they'd have about the same surface area as a tennis court. So let's use that as an analogy. Imagine each molecule of oxygen is a tennis ball, and the court is just covered with them, packed in as tight as they can go. On every breath, your lungs pull in as many tennis balls as they can touch, transferring them to the red blood cells that carry oxygen to the rest of the body. Down at sea level, you have the full weight of all the oxygen on Earth pressing down on them and forcing them together. But up at altitude, there's simply less atmospheric pressure, less weight pushing down from space and cramming the tennis balls together. So they spread out. Suddenly, it's like they're the size of basketballs. You can't fit as many on the court. In fact, at 13,000 feet, a breath only has about 62% of the oxygen your body is expecting. So it has to compensate, which is fascinating. You start breathing deeper to get more oxygen in your lungs. Your heart starts beating faster to get more blood moving through the whole system. But you're using a lot more energy to get the same amount of oxygen. And your body doesn't like that. So it starts to complain. Uh general sense of just a little lethargy, not feeling particularly well. A lot of people will have a headache, um, not feel like they're up for their usual level of activity, maybe some nausea associated with that. You might feel a little bit dizzy. Your mind gets fuzzy. People thinking is a little bit muddy, muddled, you know, you're going to have a little more trouble with the Times crossword puzzle than you might at sea, sea level. Or This is altitude sickness. Not the kind of thing you want someone dealing with as they reassemble your prototype helicopter. Scientists aren't exactly sure about mechanisms for these low-grade symptoms, but it seems to have something to do with brain swelling. So the, the science and exactly what's going on is unclear, but what is clear is that people's brains do swell, and it's almost certainly attributable to something that's going on in the environment. So, fun fact here. Because our brains shrink with age, older people tend to do slightly better at altitude than younger people. There's more room for their brain to expand. You might also hear a lot about avoiding alcohol while at altitude. This is because alcohol also causes our brains to swell a little bit. Eventually, however, your body starts to adapt. 
Most people think your body reacts to altitude by creating more red blood cells, which it does, but it takes almost a month to see much change. So that actually has very little to do with short-term acclimatization. What your body actually does is reduce the volume of everything else in the blood. It increases the ratio of red cells by getting rid of extra fluid. You pee it out. Your lungs also change their function in really interesting ways, shutting off parts of themselves that aren't working properly. So the lung is more efficient overall. If there's a part of the lung that's not doing well in terms of gas exchange, that smart of the lung is smart enough to cut off blood flow to itself and say, look, I'm not having a good day right now. You need to go somewhere else in the lung to pick up some oxygen. Adaptation to altitude varies considerably from person to person. It comes down to things like how quickly can your body pee out excess plasma? How good is it at shutting down parts of the lungs? And no one really knows how to test for something like that. But as a general rule of thumb, it takes about one day to adjust to 1,000 feet of elevation gain. So these mechanics should have spent weeks getting to La Paz, rather than hours. Their bodies had to catch up. As a result, snow fell in the mountain for days as the mechanics sat in bed, and the aircraft sat in pieces. But finally, the search could resume. The pilots were ready to haul Leopard up there. And this time, the plan was to land at the crash site. And the pilots told me that if anything happened up there, um, that that to the helicopter or anything that they had to get out of there, that they would just have to drop the rope and leave me there and come back and get me the next day. But I said I was okay with that because I had all my uh, heavy mountaineering equipment with me and I figured I could take refuge in the fuselage of the airplane if, if I had to that night. So your plan was, if anything went wrong, you would just spend the night at 19,000 feet inside a plane that had just crashed? Right, exactly. I'm going to stand by my uh, diagnosis of everyone is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They flew up to the summit and tried the maneuver, but bad weather kept them in the chopper again. The next day, the U.S. military recalled the aircraft that had flown Sikorsky's helicopter down to Bolivia. So without ever reaching the crash site, let alone finding the recorders, the search basically ended. Or, I should say, the official search. Peter, you caught me blowing my nose. Blowing your nose? Can you stand by for a second? Let me finish blowing it. Stand by for a minute. Ray Valdez flew for Eastern Airlines for 20 years, the last decade or so on the route that Flight 980 traveled, from Miami to Paraguay and back. The nose has been taken care of. That's that's great news. Uh, it sounded it sounded pretty substantial. Valdez would have been the flight engineer on the plane that crashed if he hadn't swapped shifts to avoid traveling on New Year's. So, when his family heard about the crash, they thought he was on it. So your family called you. Um, yes, very early in the morning. They were they were pretty excited to hear your voice. The, the, yeah, the one well, the one who answered the phone was my wife first. That's how I found out, actually. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. And do you remember, I mean, do you remember what your dominant emotion was at that point? I mean, were you feeling... I felt so sorry for the, particularly, see, the pilots, I didn't know, but I felt sorry for them and their families. But the flight attendants, uh, I had flown with them for so often, and, you know, they knew us well, they knew me, they knew my wife very well, and I felt very sorry for them. Yeah. Very, very sorry for them. That was my first feeling. The next feeling was... Well, I'm glad I'm still here. A few months after the NTSB and ALPA called off the search, Valdez organized an expedition to the crash site. He wanted to film a movie that could raise money for the families of the flight attendants, who he knew. You can find that movie on YouTube. Flight 980. 
I had flown the trip many times before. Some of the crew members were my friends. The expedition made it to the crash site in March and began a search. Clothing is scattered about. They found luggage, pictures, navigational charts, and snakeskins. The aircraft carried a large cargo of serpent skins for making shoes. They can be found everywhere. The snakeskins were contraband being smuggled into the U.S. In 1985, just one plane load would have probably been worth a few hundred thousand dollars in the black market. We searched the area by inserting a long rod into the snow. Whenever resistance was met, the digging began. At first, they thought the resistance meant they'd found something significant. At times, we would push the rod down and it would come back up. We discovered that the serpent skins had a sponge effect that would push the rod back up. So it, so it felt like a body to a probe that you were sticking down, but then you dug for it and it, it, was, it was never a body. It was always just a snakeskin. Just a snakeskin, and there was a lot of it, a big shipment of it. But here's where the story gets even stranger, because notably absent from the crash was Flight 980's black box, or any bodies, or even any blood. What bothers me is the blood. And when they hit, they were probably going 400 and some odd miles an hour, man. There had to be a tremendous shock, splattering of everything, yet there was no blood. Where the bodies are, where the blood is, uh, I don't know. I, I just, uh, no, nobody's been able to answer that question. When they finished searching, but before their descent, the group left a few items to mark the gravesite. A cross, and a plaque with an inscription. If you expect death as a friend, prepare to entertain him. If as an enemy, prepare to overcome him. Death has no advantage except when he comes as a stranger. By this point, there had been three expeditions to the crash site. Bernardo Garacci, which no one knew anything about, Bud Leopard, which never made it there, and the one that Ray Valdez financed, which found nothing. Then, around the same time that Valdez's expedition was on the mountain, a woman named Judith Kelly began training for her own expedition. Judith Kelly lost her husband in an airline crash in the Bolivian Andes. The crash site was too high and inaccessible for the bodies to be recovered, but she was determined to say goodbye to her husband, and she did, and she'll tell us how this morning. A remarkable story. Remarkable, not least for the fact that Kelly wasn't a mountain climber. Why did you do it? Had to do it. Just to say goodbye, really? When we determined that uh, there were no survivors and they likely could never bring those bodies back. I, I knew I had to go there. I needed to do that. In July 1985, she made it to the summit and then continued down the south side of the mountain to the plane. You took um, a packet of, of letters written directly to Bill. I had asked people to do that if they could and if they wished, and I would carry them up there and read them, and that's basically what I did at the site. When she was done... She wrapped them up and buried them in the snow. For you personally, having been there, having said your goodbyes, buried the letters and so forth, can you put it behind you now? I can as soon as we've determined that what happened. I mean, I, you I'll, may never I'll, know. I know, but I have faith that it's all going to come out well, and uh, all of us, the families, will will know. What a story of devotion, Judith Kelly. When Kelly got back to the U.S., she began lobbying Eastern Airlines and the NTSB to reopen the investigation. 
She had made it to the crash site without any problem, she argued. So why couldn't anyone go do a more thorough search? Her appearances on the Today Show and Good Morning America were an attempt to make the same argument. Are you, do, you, do you have any indication that they are going to go and investigate? They've been talking about it for some time, but you know, I'm here to see if we can't push it along a little bit because the time is critical. And it worked. Well, we volunteered to go, uh, and nothing happened essentially for 10 months, uh, well, probably nine months. Al Arrington worked as an engineer at Boeing. He developed computer models to prove a plane would float if it crashed into water. But he was also a climber with a lot of high alpine experience. So when the NTSB announced that they were going to reopen the investigation into the crash, Arrington sprang into action. We reviewed the hardware involved by literally going to a 727 at an aircraft boneyard in Seattle and practiced chopping our way through the, the side of an airplane to get at where these facilities would be. You literally went and practiced chopping into the aluminum? Yeah, so we did that. Familiarized itself with the layout of the hardware and then uh, gathered our climbing equipment, which if you're an active climber takes, you know, 28 minutes. There wasn't much lead time for anyone. NTSB investigator Greg Fife wrote in his report that he only had three days notice that he was headed to Bolivia and $600 for expenses. When the team gathered in La Paz, they spent hardly any time acclimating, heading up the mountain almost immediately. Of course, things went wrong almost immediately too. The first night on the mountain, porters took their gear to the wrong camp. When they finally did connect, they only brought tents for four of the seven people and no stoves or fuel to cook with. Then things got worse. I uh, stretched out on the rocks and I uh, woke up a couple hours later in the moonlight and uh, I realized uh, my lungs were bubbling. Remember how your lungs constrict to shut off blood flow to the parts that aren't doing so hot? Well, this increases the pressure inside the capillaries, which can cause them to burst. And that causes fluid to leak inside the lungs. Accumulation of this fluid at altitude is called HAPE, or high-altitude pulmonary edema. And it can be deadly. The common treatment for it is to take uh, diuretics, they essentially move the liquid from your body, uh, to breathe oxygen bottled oxygen, or to descend in altitude and correct the problem at its root. We had a, a couple of small bottles of oxygen provided by Eastern Airlines, I, as I recall. And uh, I started sipping that stuff during the night. And uh, I mean, literally sipping it because I knew it didn't have much of it. And that would work. Uh, I would breathe it for maybe 90 seconds. The symptoms would go away. I would doze off. I'd wake up again struggling to breathe, bubbling in my chest, and tell the guys that, you know, it's, uh, this, is, this is not good. Arrington descended, but the rest of the crew kept going up. They made it to the crash site, but then another team member, Mark Gerber, started to develop signs of high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, which occurs when the swelling in your brain gets out of control. You become disoriented, nauseous, dizzy. There's a picture of Gerber on the mountain, just totally out of it draped over two other guys. He looks like he's about to die. Shortly afterward, another guy from Boeing, Jim Baker, developed a condition called deep tissue thrombophlebitis, which is a blood clot in a vein. It's a condition associated with high altitude, though common at sea level too. So three of us got the, the three biggies from altitude. I mean, it was really a quite a, a hand we drew. One with haste, one with hape, and one with thrombophlebitis. So doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. 
Yeah, you really had a master class in altitude issues. Yeah, yeah. Did you get the sense that the the crash site had been adequately investigated? Um, the only thing I can say that sort of responds to that is that the NTSB uh, representative, Greg Feith, he said that he hoped to come back and proceed with this further. But no one ever went back. Nothing more was ever mentioned about it. Never, never uh, a word even. It's been 30 years, and the NTSB hasn't reopened the case or sent another team or asked Bolivia to send someone up there. And there are people that find that sort of suspicious. Okay, well, the name is George Jen. You really want to know my age? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 70 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, I would ask that you fasten your seatbelts. It looks like we're about to experience some turbulence. Since the official investigation wound down, details have emerged that suggest that there was more to the story than anyone first realized. For the last 30 years, George Jen, a former Eastern pilot, has been compiling those details and doing his own research into the crash. In 2014, he published a book that's made him sort of a figurehead for these theories. And at the center of the book is the idea that the plane was brought down not because it hit a mountain, but by a bomb. To me, one of the largest mysteries of this thing is where are the bodies? Why, why was there were at least three expeditions that went up there, the Ray Valdez expedition, Judith Kelly, and the NTSB, when they finally went 10 and a half months later, and not one body, not one body part, no blood stains. Why not? A bomb, Jen says, would explain the missing bodies. The plane would have depressurized during the explosion, and everyone would have been sucked out of the cabin. His evidence is circumstantial, but the circumstances are awfully suspicious. Let's just say that it was shown, the, re the recorders were recovered, and they proved that the airplane was sabotaged. Okay, so the next question would be, well, why was it sabotaged? First, the passengers on board Flight 980 weren't your average tourists. Among the 19 people paying for seats, five of them were members of Paraguay's prominent Matalan family, including Enrique Matalan, who was the richest man in Paraguay at the time. It would have been like losing five Kennedys in one plane crash. Meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador to Paraguay, Arthur Davis, was also supposed to be on board. But his plans changed the last minute, and he didn't get on the plane. His wife, Marion, was killed. Jen also writes that the ambassador was having some conflict with the president of Paraguay and was threatening to withhold U.S. aid money. So he says, there's your motive. Then there's the fact that a year later, in 1986, it was found that Eastern Airlines was being used for drug smuggling by an operation that was sending 300 pounds of cocaine to Miami every week. So this crash could have been the result of some beef between rival cartels. Remember, there were a few hundred thousand dollars worth of illegal snakeskins on board, so someone lost a lot of money when this plane went down. And then there's the fact that no one ever found the flight recorders, which could have proven, once and for all, that it was an attack. Jen wants to know, why did the NTSB give up so easily after Bud Leopard failed to get to the crash site? Why did it take Judith Kelly's expedition and being embarrassed on the Today Show to go back? When they did go back... Why was it such a fiasco? It just seems ironic to me that an expedition of that magnitude would be so poorly planned. And then 
on top of it to give Gregory Fife $600 as a total expenditure for it based upon three days of notice. It's just, does, uh, I don't have, it, I think you can see what I'm, where I'm going with this. He says it's a cover-up and that a competent investigation into Flight 980 would have caused problems for people in high places. So maybe someone was told to make things difficult for the investigators. Maybe the first person to make it to the crash site, Bernardo Garacci, was paid to personally make sure that the flight recorders were never found. There are a lot of ways this could have been played. And over the last two years, the ideas in Jen's book have caught on. I think it all has to do with drugs, in my opinion. I think that it's a massive cover-up based on just the drugs and the CIA had something to do with it. Um, And I think that's the only reason that Eastern ever started going into South America. Stacey Greer is the daughter of Mark Bird, the flight engineer on the plane that crashed. She has some very specific memories of her dad, but grew up not really knowing why he was gone. It was only in the last two years that she started trying to learn more about the crash and realized that no one has any idea what happened. For the last three decades, all that surviving families had was the weight that comes with losing someone, not knowing why. I, you know, I was my... My dad's child was his firstborn, and I feel like I have the responsibility to really figure out what happened. I mean, imagine thinking about, like, one of your family members just on the side of the mountain for years, and their body has been frozen over and over and over again, and it's just sitting there. Stacy has, at times, thought about going to the crash site and searching it for herself. But she and her husband have four kids and a dog, and it's just not going to happen anytime soon. In fact, everyone with a personal connection to the crash seems to be too tied down to go searching. Thankfully, last year, the crash found a couple of guys with almost nothing tying them down. And no personal connection to it at all. Can you guys tell me the full story of, like, how this came to be? Dan fucking about on the internet. Yeah. Meet Dan Fattrell and Isaac Stoner, two guys who first learned to Flight 980 after going down an internet rabbit hole about planes that had disappeared. And ended up on a Wikipedia page that listed the 19 unrecovered black boxes in the history of aviation. Of all the black boxes that have never been found, only a handful crashed on land. Two on September 11th, one in Nigeria, and then Flight 980 in Bolivia at 19,600 feet. Uh, really was like, hey, Isaac, read this thing. Uh, wouldn't it be cool to go get it? With such a casual response, you'd be forgiven for thinking that these guys must be skilled mountaineers with a track record of investigating high-altitude mysteries. But you'd be wrong. Dan served two tours in Iraq, but had never been up a big mountain. Isaac just has a habit of jumping on board the crazy stunts and world record attempts that Dan comes up with. And it was only recently that they read George Jen's book and got an email from Stacy Greer. Uh, and this became a lot more real when that happened. That was only three or four weeks ago. That is, they were going to go on this trip anyway. The fact that there's a mystery to solve is basically a coincidence. But if everything goes to plan, by the end of this trip, these two guys from Boston will have spent more time among the wreckage than anyone, ever. And just a few weeks before they set off, they invited me along with them. You now know more facts than anybody. You've talked to George more than we have. Um, what do you think? To me, the, the NTSB's response to the plane crash was weird enough that something, seems, something else seems like it's up. 
When we recorded this conversation, we were in Bolivia, about to head up Mount Elamani to the debris field, where we'd spent several days searching the wreckage. And we were prepared for the altitude and the cold, but I don't think any of us were really prepared to find something that would make us reevaluate everything we knew about the crash. And I don't think anyone could have predicted what would happen when we got back. That's next time on The Science of Survival. This episode of The Science of Survival was produced by me, Peter Frickwright, with sound design by Robbie Carver. Thanks to Anna Hamilton, Kenneth Mason, John Kalish, and Bobby Holloway III for their help recording some of these interviews. And to Jonathan Pfeffer for help transcribing all this tape. Also, Ellie Hurdy for helping us figure out what to say about the cardiovascular system. Also, thanks to Dan Fattrell and Isaac Stoner for returning my microphone after stealing it to record secret messages with our climbing guide, Robert Rausch, that I only heard after I got back. Oh, now it's right, so here, here's when we tell Peter what we really fucking think about him. Uh, All right, yes. Robert, okay. tell us the truth. You think he's going to be the one that sucks on the mountain? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Let the record show that Robert thinks that Peter will be the one to, to <laughs> suck on the mountain. A print version of this story appears in the November 2016 issue of Outside Magazine. Thanks to Jonah Ogles for editing that. It had a huge influence on everything you heard today. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and altitude. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. Uh, one thing about this Peter guy, for a journalist, he's real nosy. How do you feel today? What are you doing? What do you think of this conspiracy? I think he's paying the price right now in Los Banos.